Welcome to season four of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer. I've worked in the animal healthcare industry, and prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician so they can share their own directions and journeys, what's worked, what hasn't, and how they've made it all fit. Thank you for joining me as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. A big thank you to Zoetis. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support this incredible profession. Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Erin Henninger, a certified veterinary technician with a specialty in emergency and critical care, who is the executive director of the Colorado Association of Certified Veterinary Technicians which is, to my understanding, one of the strongest CVT associations in the country. So it's so nice for you to take some time to talk to us. Thank you, Kim. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Well, there are so many things I want to talk to you about. Leadership and your background in crisis management, because you had volunteered for the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Recovery in Aurora, Colorado, and you worked as a peer support specialist for Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners in Denver, correct? Yes. So that's so cool. But I want to start at the beginning. In addition to your technician degree, you have a degree in psychology and a minor in women's studies. What attracted you to those areas? Well, I've always been really interested in psychology. It started, you know, back when I was a teenager. Um, That was my original plan was to go to school for psychology, potentially become a psychologist. Uh, But I kind of got off my path a little bit and didn't kind of wavered around, didn't know what I wanted to do, and then found veterinary medicine. But I think the two lend themselves very, very well because every animal comes with an owner that has a whole host of experiences and background that that really determines who their pet is in their family and what they want to do for their pet. So I think my interest has really lended itself well to my career. And I got my degree in psychology, you know, 16 years into my veterinary career. And so I think all the time that I worked in emergency medicine really set me up well for doing well in psychology because I had pretty much an example for any sort of thing that I was learning about in psychology. I could remember a client who like fit that category of personality And I had been used to really just, you know, walking people through some of the hardest times of their life. So I think that lent itself well. And those two things really go hand in hand. But let's talk about that a little bit more, because the specific experience in your life that led you to that direction, what what do some of them stick out in your brain in terms of those 16 years and, and, and kind of that that experience and then what you were learning in psychology? Yeah, absolutely. So before I became a veterinary technician, I actually worked in an insight inpatient psychiatric unit and then moved on to veterinary medicine. And so I had that exposure and I had a few classes in psychology. You know, I had psych 101, I had abnormal psych, all of that really interesting stuff and a little bit of a sociology background. And so working in emergency and critical care specifically, um, 
is very, very hard. And I really experienced, you know, after about 12 or 13 years, I went through some really bad burnout and um, ended up doing a lot of therapy. And that like piqued my interest to get back into psychology. And what I really wanted to do was work in veterinary medicine, get my degree in psychology, and then go on to do a master's program in counseling so that I could come back to veterinary medicine. Because I think that with my experience and having that added knowledge of psychology and human behavior, that I would really be able to help technicians stay in the field longer. So it's all, to me, it's all about sustainability and learning to work within a really, really stressful field. Why do you think it's stressful? Well, I think there's, you know, many factors play into that. I think that we've got, we come, a lot of people come into veterinary medicine because they don't necessarily want to work with people. And then I have to remind myself that every pet comes with an owner. So there's a lot of interaction. Plus, there's almost nothing that you can do with a pet that you can do by yourself. You're almost always, you know, standing within one foot of somebody else. And if that person is someone else who doesn't want to work with people, then we've really got an issue. We've got a communication barrier. So we've got, we've got that piece, Um, especially in emergency and critical care, you have the added stress aspect of one, it's unexpected Two, it's mostly very expensive when you're going into the emergency clinic or you're have a you have a pet that's hospitalized so you've got people you're seeing people at their most stressed in their life and then you've got just the work itself can be very physically taxing and working in a higher level of medicine as a VTS there's also the the mental factor there's the constantly thinking constantly scanning the the situation to see if there's any changes that are happening and feeling like you're on the front lines. And I know for myself, like I am a perfectionist. I like to do it right. I like to do it right the first time. And there's that added factor of, you know, a little bit of um, imposter syndrome on top of that too. Like, oh my gosh, when are they going to find out that I'm not who I'm saying that I am? So I think all of those things together make it a very, very stressful field. It's interesting because you're a certified specialist in emergency and critical care on the veterinary side, you know, of of crisis. And and it's, and when I think of this, I'm like, are you Wonder Woman, like ready for any crisis? Dog, cat, horse, pig, human. I, I just think like you can handle anything. Can you? I think so. I like to tell myself that I can, but on the flip side of that, I'm prepared for any crisis. And so in every situation, I've got like worst case scenario in my head, whether it's with my pets, whether it's with people, whether it's, you know, having 20 emails in the inbox, like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to return all of these emails right now. And so I do feel very prepared for anything, you know, whether it is human, whether it is pet, whether it's in my own life and I live like that also. And so it's just like stressful all the time. Can you learn these skills to be prepared? Or is this something, Erin, that you just have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. In veterinary medicine, I always wanted to do emergency. And so 
I think there's some sort of personality type that attracts you to those types of situations. And so, you know, there might be some, a little bit of that, like I'm ready to throw myself in and jump in there. And I want, like, I'm going to run towards the danger rather than away. But when I worked on the crisis line, I learned that you can be taught a lot of these skills to help people out in these situations. Um, I had an amazing trainer. She had a a master's in education. I think that was very, very helpful. She had a lot of mental health lived experience and she was very, very open and vulnerable. And I think that's one of the biggest keys that we got in there and we role-played. We role-played, what do you say when someone calls and says, you know, I'm sitting on the bar stool and you have 10 seconds to tell me why I shouldn't blow my brains out right now. And it's like your heart stops. Like even right now, just thinking about that, I'm like sweating because that is a situation that I was really in. And it's just like, you have to prepare for that situation because you're going to automatically have that reflex in your body, like that panic, but you can override that with really, really, really solid training. And I think that even goes into veterinary medicine. It's like, if you don't have really great training and a repetition of that training, you might, you might have the knowledge, but you may not be able to access it. And if you work with someone who's training, who is very vulnerable, that talks about the time that, you know, that dog came in and, you know, it was a GDV and it was flat out and you're the only technician working. And so it's like all on you. Um, if you never hear those stories, you never see the progression of how people go from a beginner, like a novice in the field to an expert. And so there's a lot of that vulnerability and that is stuff that we can share and that stuff that we can teach each other and learn how to, you know, be who we want to be in those situations. I imagine though, some people are listening and thinking, well, vulnerability is weakness, but it sounds like it is quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. It is quite the opposite. You know, I, I think a lack of vulnerability is what led me to burnout in my career, burnout, compassion, fatigue. Um, I had a lot of compassion fatigue and I held everything inside. Like I remember the moment that my compassion fatigue, like became too much for me. And I had been working through the holidays. It was crazy busy and animals just kept coming in, coming in, coming in. And I was like, just, I was just drowning. And I didn't want to say anything to anyone. Cause it was like, Oh, there's just another thing to do and another thing to do. And I can't take a break and I can't eat and whatever. And everyone's scrambling around like a chicken with their head cut off. And at that point in time, I had never really been like very vulnerable. And I remember like, I got to the point where I was like, Oh, like, I hope they choose to euthanize this dog or I hope this dog just passes away because I do not have any more capacity to do anything. And that was like very, very heartbreaking for me because I am here to like fix it all and I can do it all. And for that to be like the thing that popped into my head, I was like, something is wrong. And that was like my cue that I had to do like something more than what I was doing for myself at that point in time. And what that involved was talking to people more, doing more therapy, because I was already doing therapy at that time, and really 
creating space in my work environment to become vulnerable and like the opposite happened. Like people didn't look at me like I was weak. People looked at me like, holy crap, like this is what I'm going through also. And the fact that she's saying that and she has been here for 10 years, that just brought us all a lot closer. And we started to do things a little bit differently and talk about things more. And it created more bonds between the two of us, between all of us working together. And we started to rely on each other and we're all we're stronger together and so instead of just like relying on myself and being like i can get through this myself i don't need anybody being vulnerable brings everybody like into your space and you all work together at that point and it sounds like you don't have to get to a state of such catastrophe or or such burnout to open yourself up to vulnerability. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is, guys, you don't have to get to where I was to embrace this because, you know, um, you can do this ahead of time, almost like. Right. Yes. (laughs) It it does not have to be a response to crisis. Yes. You said (laughs) that much better than me. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's just go with this a little bit more because I think this is really interesting. How, How do you get in that nice, supportive place before the crisis? How, how do you, so how do you get there? Yep. Um, some things that I practice now, because I do still tend to like, um, wait till I'm in crisis mode to like really start taking care of myself. Um, but some things that I do now is that I practice vulnerability and in low risk situations. Um, so even when someone asks, like a stranger, you're, you're checking out at the store and they ask you, how are you doing? You know, oh, not great. Today's been really stressful. Zero, zero sort of, you know, risk in that situation. You don't know that person. They're probably not going to ask you any more questions, but you get to put that out there and see how that feels. Like, how does it feel to tell the truth about what's going on with you and not put on like that fake face. You know, sometimes I, you know, I've been socialized to smile at everyone that walks by me. And sometimes I tell myself like, you don't have to smile at these people today. Like if you don't feel like smiling, you don't need to do that. So practicing in the, in really low risk situations um, is a really good thing. I even do this with my kids so that I can practice vulnerability for them and they're getting really good at it. If I am feeling cranky and I yell at them, like I get really tired at like six o'clock at night. Like I like to go to bed at like eight 30 is the latest I like to stay up and it gets to be like six o'clock and I start to find myself like snapping at my kids. I say to them like, oh, I'm just really getting tired. I think we just have to like sit down and watch some TV. And they're like, yeah, you are getting tired. We can tell. (laughs) (laughs) So those are pretty low risk situations and getting used to being vulnerable in those situations is helpful. Or even just saying, you know, you walk out of the room and it's like the sixth euthanasia of the day saying like, wow, six euthanasia is is a lot. And I'm really starting to feel that maybe I'm going to go take a a break for five minutes. Like I don't know anybody that I work with that would, or ever have worked with good or bad that would ridicule someone for, for that sort of situation. So start practice those little things and then find your safe people is a huge thing because 
for a time in my life, I had a real lack of boundaries and I would, I would tell anyone everything. I had this idea in my head that everybody deserved to hear all my story and I had to explain myself to everyone. And I learned through a lot of work on boundaries, through therapy and through Brene Brown is amazing that not everybody needs to hear your story or deserves to hear your story. So pick out, you know, the one to two people that you have in your life that really have earned that trust. And, you know, it's good to have a person like that at work. If you don't, you know, have somebody, a few people outside of work that you can tell those things to, because sometimes oversharing can really come back to bite you. So find the people that have earned the right to hear your story. Well, let's dig deeper on this because on one hand, you're saying you're not feeling very happy and, and you're in the grocery store and you don't feel like smiling. So you don't mm-hmm. smile at the person. Is that sharing your story? I think what I'm confused on is the difference between, you know, you, you have your safe people who you, who you tell your story to and mm-hmm. who are um, deserve to hear your story. And then yep. there's just people, you know, who I guess you're practicing your vulnerability with. Mm-hmm. Practicing your vulnerability does not mean you're telling that person your story. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Is that right? Right. Yes. Because sometimes you, <clears throat> excuse me, healthy boundaries are not telling people your story. It depends on who who you are and how you tend to show up. Like I tend to show up as an overshare. Some people don't want to share anything with anyone. And so it kind of depends on your habits and what you're really looking to change. And so for me, sharing with someone that, you know, I'm not having a great day, you don't have to get into the details even if they ask you to elaborate, you don't have to tell them any details. That would be a great exercise in saying no. And so it really depends. If you're a person who never smiles at anybody and, you know, always is like, I'm having a terrible day, you know, maybe you want to practice like smiling at one or two people and opening up if that's what feels right as far as vulnerability, because there we all live on that spectrum. And sharing the nitty gritty details just for the sake of sharing is not necessarily vulnerability. Vulnerability involves a little bit of emotion and some details, but you have to also protect yourself. I did your some research on you and I loved your LinkedIn mission, which was, quote, to live each day with serenity and connection by expressing honesty and courage so that I can inspire others to recognize their value and worth. Tell me more. Yes. So I did a, it was a a recovery workshop where we determined our life's motto. You know, since I started this whole journey, this whole compassion fatigue recovery journey, I have wanted to share my story so that other people could hear it, could connect, could learn maybe what they needed to from that. I also, I think that it's really important that everybody feel comfortable who they are as they are in every situation, uh, because that's, you know, just living in your truth is what 
connects us. And I think there's so much living with expectations, with other people's expectations that does not allow us to be our authentic selves. And especially when you are, you know, working in a career where you feel like you, there's like a certain level that you have to uphold and you, you know, struggling with imposter syndrome thinking, and maybe, maybe you don't know what other people think that, you know, um, and one of the questions that they asked us in this workshop was if you could tell all the kids of the world, one thing, what would that be? And to me, it's just that you are good enough the way you are. And I like just thinking about that, like, you know, brings tears to my eyes because I think about times when I live my life in, you know, not who I am and feeling like I wasn't good enough and trying to be somebody else. And it just, there's only so much that your soul can really take. I remember driving to work one day and I was just like, oh, I cannot take this life anymore. I just can't take it like this. I don't know what's wrong but I can't do this anymore. And I just was like, I hope my car drives off the side of the road and like it's over because this, if this is what life has to offer, like I'm done with it. You know, fortunately my car did not drive off the side of the road (laughs) and I went to work and it was, you know, it was a symptom of something larger in my life. It was a symptom of not living in my truth and as who I am, from that point forward, it was kind of like, I've got to do something different and I've got to work on myself. And that was kind of the basis of my my mission in life is to let people know that they are good enough. And we all have things probably that we would like to work on and do a little bit differently. But the core of being a human is that you deserve to live in this world as you are. Well, I want to switch gears and talk about leadership. As Mm -hmm. executive director of the Colorado Association of Certified Veterinary Technicians, what steps did you take to get to this position? Because you, Erin, you obviously just didn't like land in this executive director position. So how did this come about? Yeah. So I had actually, the CACVT had reached out to me several years ago. um, And they had a speaker that got very, very severe food poisoning and was supposed to be flying in from California to speak, be the the keynote speaker, and then also do a hands-on lab at their conference. And this was two days before the conference. And I, you know, I was one of the names that popped up as someone who may be able to cover for this person. And so when they called, I was like, heck yeah, I can do it. And I even have my own presentation already done. And so I really just jumped at the chance to get involved with CACBT. And from there, I I moved on to the board. I, I was nominated and then elected to serve on the board. I was president of the board. Um, so I had had like about a five or six year history of being involved with the CACBT. And then we had a lot of transition in the leadership of our organization. And I was on the board at that time and I was in a really good position to come on as the interim executive director. And I was also just finishing up my psychology degree. It's kind of like everything all just kind of came together, like as it's supposed to. And I stepped into this role as the interim executive director with, you know, I had gotten into 
um, a master's program for counseling. I had no intention of staying in this role. And when I really started to do it, I thought to myself, you know, this isn't really a whole lot different than counseling people and helping people determine the path that their career is going to go on. And as I'm doing the work and as I'm putting together manuals and things like that, I thought I'm going to throw my hat into this, this opportunity and see what happens. You know, we had hired a recruitment firm and someone to help the board go through the whole process of sourcing an executive director. So I ended up um, applying for the position, going through the whole process and got down to one of the last two candidates. It was a really, it was a very grueling process because in veterinary medicine as a technician, there's such a shortage. And so it's like you apply for a job and they're like, when can you start in five minutes? Like, you know, right in your interview. And so I was like, wow, this is really a process. And it helped me really learn more about myself. Um, but the board decided to take a chance on me because I had I had all the veterinary experience. Um, I, I have a really wide network. I did relief teching for a while and worked for a relief company as an account manager. And so I have a lot of connections to a lot of different technicians. Um, my crisis line background helped for sure with just being able to help people through any career changes. And they could see that I demonstrated, you know, a devotion to lifelong learning, which is in the veterinary technician oath. And I take that very seriously. I wish I could be a student forever. So they, they could see my past record of really jumping in and working on big projects and being in leadership. And so I got, you know, I was hired for the position and the board of directors has been very, very supportive of my learning the whole side of association management, because that is definitely not something that we are exposed to in veterinary medicine. It's quite different, um, but I'm really, I'm really enjoying it because I have always been someone who, you know, I went to tech school. I learned the job for a few years. I got my VTS. I did that for a long time. And then I went back to school. It's like I'm always working and I always have my eye out for the next big thing that I can do. So I'm really excited to be in this role. Excellent. And you mentioned that you said during the process, you learned a lot about yourself. What did you learn? Yep. Um, I learned that I really need to promote myself. Um, I have a tendency, I'm a very collaborative leader. And in every situation, I look back on my career, it's been, you know, you can't really do anything without a team around you. And so when I speak, I speak in terms of we and, you know, we did this project because you hardly ever work on anything by yourself. And uh, one of the the interviewers in this process was like, I keep hearing a lot of we, I want to hear more about what you did. And I was like, wow, well, that's a little bit reflective of my style. But I also learned that I can take credit for some of these things, because I have worked really, really hard to get where I am. It didn't, nothing really just fell in my lap. Um, but I also learned that I do have the capacity to to look beyond like what my current knowledge is. I, I know that I, I don't know everything and I think that's a really valuable tool. And so it's, you know, when they ask you like, what do you think that you might 
look at for different measurements and things like that. Um, you know, I really had to push the edge of my knowledge. And even, you know, during that interview process, I was like, I know that I want to look at more than just the numbers. And I'm not really sure what that looks like right now. But I know now that you've asked me that question that I will find out what those measurements are. And so I learned that it is okay to say that you don't know something. And it is okay to take credit where it's due. Right. Because I think, that just as you said, there there's definitely a balance or not even a balance. There's room for both we and me. Yes. For credit. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Especially yeah. when you're work- when if you're working on a great team, everyone brings their, you know, they bring their A game, they bring their skill sets and it wouldn't work if everyone had the same knowledge base, the same skill set. And so you are able to really, like you said, there's room for we and I. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I'm going to use that. <laughs> Well, we're almost out of time. I wanted to ask you just a couple more questions. And you touched upon this in that leadership and well-being and psychology, they're not independent of each other. No. So I just wanted to talk a little bit more about how you see their relationship in your job. So in my job, personally, I have noticed, and COVID has been a real eye opener for how how all of those things work together. Um, Because right when this all hit the CACVT, we were planning a our annual conference. And it was gonna be pretty big this year, probably about 600 attendees, um, you know, like 12 different speakers. And we had to make the the decision about what we were going to do. And we decided to go virtually, which was so cool. And I was so happy that we did it, but so much work. And so once we made that decision, I think we had about like five weeks before the date of the conference. And I jumped into it, like, you know, just two feet in the water, like all in right away. And, um, even my kids, I was just like, you know, you're on your own. You're probably gonna have to make your own lunch. You might even have to make your own dinner. (laughs) (laughs) because I am busy. And I really just like hammered down for a couple of weeks, you know, blinders on doing everything kind of in my true fashion, just like get it done. And after a couple of weeks, it was just like, I was running out of ideas. And I was starting to feel kind of helpless, kind of feel stuck especially because planning a huge conference, there's so many moving pieces that, and I depend on, had to depend on a lot of other people. And so I got into this space where I was just like, not eating well, not moving my body and really just focusing on it, talking about the conference. Everything was about the conference 24 seven. And I got to a point where I was like, I think I'm about to crash and burn. Like I really was like, I, if I don't do something different, I'm going to crash and burn. And luckily I've been, you know, close to the verge of crashing and burning a number of times. So I know I can recognize it in myself. So I was like, what are you going to do? I downloaded the calm app and bought a subscription and started uh, meditating. And I 
started walking my dog. I got a dog in January too. And he's like saved my life through this whole thing. Cause he actually like got me outside. So once I started to do that and after a couple of days, like even knowing that I was taking some of that time for myself, um, you know, it's almost like my mind opened up again and I was more creative and I worked better with other people. I was more willing to listen to them. It didn't have to be my way or the highway. And so that piece of wellness and leadership, uh, it really, really, they really go hand in hand, like in every aspect, you can't even really pull them apart because you can't do it by yourself. But when you are, when I am falling like out of my wellness, I do tend to want to do everything myself. And so, you know, the more that I can keep myself in a good place, I wouldn't say the faster, but the better the journey is to where we want to get in this association, because where we want to get is, you know, we want this association to be, you know, the members to be really engaged. We want it to be for the members. We want it to work for all the members. And I'm only just one member. And if it's all just about me, we're going to miss out on a lot of different opportunities and a lot of, you know, colorful aspects of what we can offer to our members. Aaron. You're incredible. Oh, thank you. You are. Oh my gosh. We are out of time. I just want to ask, as I always ask during the show, if there's a funny veterinary story from the trenches that you might want to share with us. I, you know, I'm, I, as I said, I do my research. I know you worked with feral cats at one point, your, you know, your emergency work, anything come to mind that you'd like to share with us? Working so long in emergency and critical care, I feel like all of my funny stories have a little bit of a dark side. But, you know, when you asked me that question, the first thing that pops to my mind is uh, I was working with this case and I was very pregnant at the time, probably seven or eight months pregnant. And the dog had a maggot infestation and maggots, maggots and fractured bones are like the two things that really, really get to me and make me nauseous. And so I'm standing there and I had to pull the trash can next to me while I'm working with this dog and trying to clean off all these maggots because periodically I would have to retch and I was afraid I was going to throw up and I didn't want it to be like all over the floor. So Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not, yeah, maggots oh. are just ugh, ugh, to everybody, but boy, that that's yeah. something. Oh, oh my goodness! Oh. It just makes my skin crawl thinking about it. Right I now. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm now remembering a rabbit, but I that's yeah, that's not for this podcast. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we're gonna end on a happy note: <laughs> sunshine and rainbows, right? And unicorns. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, well, thank you. Like thank you so much for coming on the show. We really yeah, appreciate it. I have really enjoyed my time with you, Kim. Thank you so much for helping me think about all of these things and just reminding me of why I am where I am today and how I got here. Well, thank you. Another episode of Scrub Chat has ended, but there are more coming. Don't worry. Scrub Chat is a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. There are always more stories to tell, so get ready for them. Please remember to visit VetVance at www.vetvance.com and check out Zoetta's Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get more information about life issues such as handling 
student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetVance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. We would love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. Until next time, I'm Dr. Kim Farina, and this is Scrub Chat.